Give me a B. Give me an A. Give me an M. Give me an L. It's by all means necessary. Welcome. <laughs> I hope I'm a better podcaster than cheerleader, because God, that was God awful. <laughs> Welcome to yet another episode of By All Means Necessary. It's a podcast. You know what a podcast is by now? It's 2021. And I started this one way too late for the podcasting standard. So I think you're all up to date. I don't have to explain it to you. This episode... Listen, I really need you all to find me on the socials, on Twitter and Instagram, that Pod, or email me podbam at gmail.com what you think about this case. Because... Uh, It's driving me insane. And I don't mean just like general insane, kind of like most cases do. This case has just taken a toll on me on so many different levels. I watched Compliance. Quick recap, a friend of mine told me to watch this movie on Amazon Prime. And she was like, it's shocking, it's based on the real story. And my friends know that I watch like maybe 1% of the movies ever made. I'm not a movie person. So if they recommend me a movie, it needs to be a good one. So I watched a trailer and I was like, this, (laughs) what do you mean this is based on the true story? Like, this did not happen. So even before watching a movie... Of course, I have to spoil everything for myself. I watched the real-life video of the events. And then I was like, okay, well, uh, now I must watch this. It's painfully slow, and as I told you, it ends in sexual assault. I don't know what this is psychologically, but you know when somebody needs to get something out of their system? Like, I have it with everything in my life. Like, cereal, I have to eat cereal until I'm, like, fed up with it. Literally every single food or drink, I'm like, okay, cool, I will get it out of my system and then I will move on. That's the situation I'm in with this case. I was like, okay, I need to research the real-life event, then record it, then edit it, so I suffer through hours and hours until I get it out of my system and try to understand it. And this is where you come in. Welcome to this episode. Let's dive into the expression of the day and then dive into the insane case of the McDonald's phone scam. Trigger warning about this episode, it's dealing with sexual assault, so if that's something you don't want to listen to, feel free to exit right now. Also, I really wouldn't want to put somebody who maybe was ever sexually assaulted through this, so... Just neglect everything that I have said. If you have ever experienced sexual assault, if you don't want to listen to anything about it, don't watch Compliance and maybe skip this episode. There is plenty in the archive. The expression of the day is mind your own business, (laughs) which will become a bit on the nose when you listen to the case later on. But mind your own business is a common saying in English language, that requests for respect of other people's privacy. So, for example, if somebody's too nosy and they're like, why are you listening to? You're like, mind your own business, I'm listening to my podcast. And then you finish with the episode and you're like, okay, I'm so sorry about telling you to mind your own business. I was actually just busy, but like, this is the podcast. I recommend it to you. I recommend it to every single person ever. It's called By All Means Necessary. It's hosted by this queen. (laughs) I think you got the gist. Most of the internet actually suspects that this comes from a popular expression from the 18th and 19th century, which was mind your own beeswax. This was an actual expression. Every time I hear mind your own beeswax, I feel 
Like people are kind of trying to pacify an expression. You know how they're doing it with kids? When people are like fork instead of fuck or ship instead of like shit. But apparently not. Because in 18th and 19th centuries, women suffered from disfiguring marks that were left by smallpox. And in those instances, they would use beeswax, yep, the wax of the bees, to smooth out their complexion, to smooth these marks on their face out. And in those cases, if somebody was to get you close to them and be like, oh, what's that on your face? They would say, mind your own beeswax. Of course, Christians will say that this actually comes from the Bible, as an expression from Thessalonians for one, do your own business. But one of the more popular uses of the expression came from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. And I love this line, because you should really, trust me, if you come from a small city and come to a big town, this line will relate to you so much. And it is, if everybody minded their business, the Duchess said in a hoarse growl, the world would go round a great deal faster than it does. Which, trust me, again, as somebody that came from like a small city to London, I'm like, yeah, the life here goes so, so much faster. Like, every time I go home, it's great for holidays, but I feel every single one of those 24 hours. Like, when you go to a small city, you really feel like, wow, the day really has 24 hours. Like, what is that all about? Like, you just don't feel the time pass by. It's like a completely parallel universe. Now that we are done with the expression of the day, for you to even try to grasp this case, I need to walk you through an experiment. You're like, what? Is this like a hypothetical situation? Nope. It's important for you to understand Milgram experiment in particular, because when it comes to this case, a lot of people are saying, no, this is a real-life version of Milgram experiment. It's a real-life version why we are compliant and obedient to the authority figures. Stanley Milgram Apart from being one of the most interesting people to study when studying criminal psychology at uni, was also a psychologist at Yale University during 1960s. And he set out to answer one simple question. If an authority figure ordered you to deliver a 400-volt electrical shock to somebody else, the person you don't know, would you follow? Would you follow their orders? When you hear that question, you're like, no, of course I wouldn't. Why would I shock somebody? Like, there are repercussions to that. There are consequences to that. They might die. What if they told you it's all an experiment? There are no consequences to your actions. Well, Milgram will prove that regardless of you knowing about the consequences or not, when it comes to authority figure, most people will obey. When describing this experiment, Milgram actually said about social psychology that often it's not much the kind of person a man is as it is about the situation in which they find themselves that will determine how they will act. The inspiration for him to do this were obviously Nazi experiments during World War II by a war criminal called Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was one of many people working under Hitler whose defense was that he was simply following orders. He was following instructions and because of these instructions he killed millions of Jews. Like, what is not clear? I was simply pressing a button. 
the hypothesis therefore was could it be that Eichmann and million other accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders? Could we call them all accomplices? And then the experiment followed. The participants would come to the university, so it's already a controlled environment, you think you're coming to uni for a study, you're thinking it's already legit. He found 40 men through newspaper ads, and in exchange for the participation, each of these men was paid $4.50. Now, this is to say that the compensation wasn't great, like you couldn't do, even back in the day, much with $4.50, so they weren't doing it for money. Once they were at uni, they would be introduced to another participant, the authority figure who was Milgram. Then these participants would go into a draw to find out who is going to be a teacher and who is going to be a learner. What I didn't know is that this draw was fixed. So the participants were always teachers and the learners were one of the people organizing the experiment working for Milgram. Then they would put the learners, so one of Milgram's friends, in the room. They would put them to the chair and attach electrodes to their arms. And the teacher and researcher were in another room. They didn't have vision into the room where the learners were, but they could hear the sounds. They would then be introduced to this machine, which was electric shock generator, which was marked between 15 volts to 450 volts. So from slight shock to severe shock. The study would be teacher asking the learner to read aloud series of word pairs, sort of like red hammer, green apple, random pairs of like color and an object. And the learner was instructed to memorize those. And then the teacher would read the target words. So let's say in this instance, red. And the learner was to select the original word, hammer. If the learner was to make a mistake, they would get an electric shock. And because these were the people behind the experiment, they would most of the time make mistakes on purpose. And then Milgram, as the authority figure, would instruct the teacher, no, 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 shock them. Shock them some more. Increase the voltage. According to the script, the learner was to start to scream, to protest when it comes to the increased intensity of voltage, to complain that his heart was bothering him, and to refuse to just go on to ask for them to stop with the experiment. And again, according to the same script, Milgram was to say the following. Either something like, please continue, or the experiment requires you to continue, or it's absolutely essential you continue, or you have no other choice, you must go on. The catch was the learner wasn't actually getting electric shocks, as you probably guessed, it was just an experiment, and obviously, like, Milgram wouldn't have put people through it, but it was to study the teachers. And why wouldn't they stop? Was it simply because an authority figure was telling them to continue? According to the script, once you instruct them with the four instructions that I have read out, and you were to ask questions as a teacher in that instance, you were just met by silence. When it comes to the results, Milgram himself was horrified by what this experiment revealed. He concluded that 65% of the subjects continued to inflict the shocks even to the 450 volt level, so the highest voltage, despite the screams, the protests, the 330 level, like which they shouldn't be going above, and the disturbing silence from the other end, once the learner was completely silent. 
What frightened him the most was when the learner was silent after the 450 volts. So they didn't even hear the screams any longer. They had no idea what was going on behind the screen. They still continued to shock the subjects, even if they failed to respond. He expected the results to be 3% of the people giving the maximum shock. So when he realized it was 65% of the people, he was quite disturbed by the results. He had an explanation, though. He said it's one of the two instances in these social situations. The first one is the autonomous state. So people directing their own actions and taking responsibility for them. The second one is more important here. It's the agentic state. And that's when people allow others to direct their actions and pass off the responsibility to somebody else. Because it's that somebody who should know what I should do in this situation because they are conducting this experiment. And for them to be in this agentic state, the person giving the orders needs to be perceived as qualified to direct other people's behavior. And they are seen as legitimate. They are seen as the person in a white coat. They are seen as somebody with respect. In this person, they are at university conducting an experiment. They are a professor. Why wouldn't they trust them? Or the second instance is that teachers in these cases believed that the authority is going to accept responsibility for whatever happens, kind of like they fought in Nazi Germany. They just thought it's somebody else's fault. They will not take fall for it. We'll go back to Milgram at the end of this case to discuss more about it when it comes to the motives and why these were his findings. And you could obviously criticize Milgram, like there's a lot of criticism about him just using males. You know, how could you say this is a representation of the US or like any country as a whole? You know, what would happen if this experiment was to be conducted somewhere else? And again, we're going to talk more about that because I looked into that as well at the end of this case. But in today's story... We have this agentic state like you've never heard of it before. In 2004, at a Kentucky McDonald's, a scam call came through. The caller pretended they were a police officer, instructing the store manager to perform a strip search on an employee called Louise Ogborn. The strip search was to be performed under a pretext that Louise was stealing from a customer. This event resulted in three and a half hours of humiliating actions resulting in a sexual assault. This will not be an individual case. Over 70 similar calls were reported everywhere around the US, with the person responsible getting away by all means necessary. This is the story of strip search phone call scam. Every day you're like, Maya, what other choreography can you invent to that intro tune song? Listen, it's a facial one this time. It's a facial choreography. Tune in on YouTube to watch it. Also, if you have a specific dance to the intro song, please share it on the socials. I will post it. I will blast it anywhere. If anybody has a better one than me boxing the last time, trust me. I'll share anything. I find the tune so catchy. Okay, now bringing the mood right down where it belongs with this episode. So, 
Louise Ogborn was working at the McDonald's in Mount Washington, Kentucky, and she was always that person that you would ring up when you need somebody to work an extra shift. Her mother was having some health issues at the time, and her mother also recently lost her job, so Louise, who was 18 at the time, would do whatever to help out the family. So on April the 9th, 2004, she was offered an extra shift during the evening rush at the restaurant, and she obviously said yes, like, I will be there. The next thing Louise remembered was being called into assistant manager's Donna Summer's office. Listen, if I have one job, one single job today, that is to make you hate the assistant manager Donna Summers with a passion, with a whim, with energy of a bull. Like, by the end of this episode, if you don't hate this woman as much as I do, I haven't done my job. That's it. No pressure, Maya. No pressure whatsoever. So Donna calls Louise into the office and tells her there's a police officer on the phone and they're saying you just stole from a customer. So Louise hears Donna on the phone saying here she is, the girl you described. So this apparent police officer on the phone described there's this really young blonde girl. There was a customer that was there, you know, and as she had a purse on the counter while she was ordering, Donna did steal some money from the purse. So Louise goes into the defensive mode saying like, I haven't done anything wrong. Like, you know me by now. I would never do that. I don't have it in me. To which Donna just responds, well, they just described you perfectly, so you're the only person fitting this description on shift. The options Louise had were submit to a strip search or be escorted to the police office. While still at the beginning of this call, Donna kind of tries to negotiate with Officer Scott on the other line, and she is saying, like, listen, I know this woman, like, she's always been honest, I never knew her to steal a single thing from this restaurant, but the officer on the other end of the line said he had a McDonald's corporate on the other line, as well as the store manager, and he mentioned their name, so Donna knew, okay, this was my manager, this is like a branch manager, so the person above me, he knows their name, he must be legit. Donna would also later say that she thought at this time that she heard police radios in the background. So Louis thinking, okay, let's get this over with, this is extremely weird, why is the police on the way? The nearby police station is like half a mile away, it's literally like a walk away, why is this happening? But sure, you know, I don't want to go into the police station, just want to get this over with and continue with my shift. So the voice on the phone, known as Officer Scott, instructed Donna to instruct Ogborn to empty her pockets. Then the next was take her car keys and her cell phone and give it to Donna. The next was for Louise to remove all of her clothes, even her underwear, because this money, she could be hiding it anywhere. And this is the part that goes so slowly, and that's why compliance is such a great watch, because it's so painful to watch, because it's literally instruction per instruction. And at first you're like, well, okay, I mean, it's bizarre as hell, but, you know, when you're thinking, okay, strip search... When you know as much as I know about, like, prison strip searches, yeah, they need to check certain body cavities. Yeah, you could be hiding drugs or, like, money anywhere, 
as much as it's illogical and bizarre and should never have happened, you can still kind of follow why a strip search would involve somebody getting naked and stripping naked. But yes, it should definitely happen only if somebody is being arrested. At the end of this, Louise is left without her clothes, without her car keys, and she is just left with this dirty apron that Donna kind of threw at her, and she is only left to cover with it. Because Officer Scott, on the other end of the line, instructed Donna to take the clothes, to put them in a plastic bag, and then to go outside of the restaurant, go into her car, leave the car unlocked, and leave that bag with the clothes so that they can examine it. This is when I started losing it, because I was like, in what universe would this have happened? And yes, if you have watched Compliance upon my instructions on like any social media ever, what you have seen is about 100% true. It's just the aftermath that you will probably be unaware of. So sorry that I'm putting you all through this pain yet again. It's important case to speak about. At this point, Sedona went out, left the clothes back in, and she returns, and the restaurant is packed. It's one of those sit-in McDonald's, and it's not a drive-thru, it's a packed night. So everybody's sort of like, hey, Donna, can you help? Like, can Louise come back? Like, we are cramped. We need all hands on deck. So... Donna goes back on the phone and she's like, listen, it's a rush night, I hope you understand, but like, she can stay here, the police officers will come and then you can like take her in or whatever the hell, you can examine those clothes and you know, we can finish this up, like I need to go back to the restaurant to do my shift. But the person on the other end of the line said no, like you can't leave her by herself, is there anybody else that can watch her? So Donna comes with a great conclusion that men can complete this action, they can fulfill these actions, and she goes and finds another employee at McDonald's at that time, and this was 27-year-old Jason Bradley. Jason Bradley was 27, and he goes in and is kind of like looking at Louise, like, oh, what is going on? Why are you in an apron? Why are you naked? But obviously, probably there was like some attraction there. Also, this woman is just literally sitting only frontally covered by this apron. So he takes the phone and is like, kind of like, what is going on? And Officer Scott on the other end of the line immediately goes on with this, being like, well, we need to perform a strip search. You need to tell her to drop this apron for us to search her cavities. And Jason is there like, mm-mm, like, I ain't doing any of that. And trust me, I'm not going to justify any single person in this story, because Jason was 27, even though he was young, he should have known better. He just knew that something was off, but he didn't do anything about it. He didn't like go out and say, this is what they're making me do, this is what is going on. Like He didn't help her in any way, he was just kind of like disgusted by it, and just left and went back to the front, leaving the phone and leaving Louise there in her apron. So Donna comes back and she gets on the phone and the caller is just saying, I mean, this guy will not do. Sorry, Donna, we need somebody of confidence. We need a man and we need somebody who can control the situation. And this is when he asks her, wait, are you, are you married, Donna? And Donna is there like, oh my god, now that you asked, I'm actually engaged to be married. I know, right? I'm totally building rapport with you. So Officer Scott is like, 
do, do you trust your fiance? Like, that's such great news. Congratulations. Do you trust him, though, to come and observe, like a creep, this girl that is, like, nude in front of us? And she's like, yes, say no problem. I'm going to ring him right now. Before we pick up, once Donna's fiancé gets to the restaurant, let's just briefly discuss why didn't Louise run out at this point? I can think of a couple of things that she will mention in this interview, but let's listen to her say it herself. Why couldn't you run out? I was naked. I was scared. I mean, any normal person in that situation, they wouldn't have ran out. You're convinced there's no way you could have done it? There's no way. Did you think about it? I wanted to so bad, I wanted to run. And you would have had to have run through the restaurant. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have ran out the back door. I couldn't have done anything. I couldn't bring myself to humiliate myself worse than I already was. As she says there, she has given in her keys, her clothes, she's only frontally covered with this apron, she would have to go through the restaurant, like, she didn't have any other options, so she just chose to stay there, because she didn't want to get any more embarrassed than she already was. This is when Walter West Nicks, Donna's fiancé, enters the plot. So, Donna just rings him, he was at home... And according to him, Donna told him there is a girl in the office that was caught stealing and I have a police officer on the phone who is accusing her of even dealing drugs and police at the moment are searching her home. Now you're wondering why I didn't mention anything about anybody searching her home. That's again because it's a bogus information that Officer Scott just invented on the spot. But it will prove relevant once they started investigating this case because of how insanely creepily good this guy was. So remember how Louise was saying, like, you know, I would have never stolen, like, all of that? Well, Officer Scott on the phone to Donna was saying, wait, no, 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 I swear she has a family member that is involved in some shady business, in, in some drugs. And then Donna would, like, reiterate that to Louise. And then Louise was like, no, that's not like, that's my brother. And, like, he doesn't do drugs anymore. So, of course, this guy took the bait and said, no, actually, why the police is not on the way right now, why everything is delayed, is because we're searching her house. Her brother is dealing drugs. She must have started dealing drugs as well herself, because stealing, you know, leads to drugs dealing. That was his logical conclusion. So Nix says, like, no problem. Like, yeah, that sounds kind of weird. But I'll get there. I'll get there. I'll go into the back office and observe this 18-year-old girl. As soon as Nix arrives to this restaurant, Donna is like, yeah, take the phone. Like, I need, like, the business needs me. The business needs me. I need to be in the front of the restaurant, take the phone. And she just leaves the office. Louise has never met her fiancé before. She is literally tugging at this apron, trying to cover all parts of her body, because nobody cared to give her, like, a jacket, any clothes, anything at all, and she's just, like, at the mercy of this caller and this new person that is now in the room with her. For the next two hours, Nix will follow every single instruction that came out from the other side of that line. 
First, he was instructed to pull that apron away, leaving her completely nude again. Then, she was ordered to dance around, like, do some jump jacks to see if anything was to, like, fall out of any parts of her body, any cavities, where she could be hiding drugs or this money that she has apparently stolen. The caller would ask her to do deep knee bends for him to check if there's anything in her ass, to stand on this swiveling chair, then to stand on a desk. If this wasn't awful enough, Danny took the left turn because Danny just started being a game. At this point, all pretenses about this even being about a strip search just fell through. Because the caller asks Louise to sit on Nix's lap, to kiss him, for Nix to smell anything on her breath. Like, is she hiding something in her mouth, in her throat? Every time Louise refused to obey, Nix would be instructed to slap her, to spank her, because he would say, no, you need to be authority, you need to ask her to obey, to call you sir. And then he would ask Louise to get on the phone, and then on the phone he would humiliate her and tell her, well, every time you would disobey as a child, what would your parents do? They would spank you, so he is going to do the same now. Now give him back the phone. Every time she would disobey, every time she wouldn't refer to Nix as sir, Nix was told to bend her over his knee and spank her violently over and over. At one point in this video, she was spanked for almost 10 minutes. Again, just as a break in this god-awful case, because it escalates somehow even further from here, and because I'm putting you through the same pain I have slowly gone through when watching this movie, where the fuck was Donna all this time? You know, your favorite character by now? Well, Donna was busy, but she was going back and forth. So, like, she would go in there, then she would, you know, just come to check up on everything, to, like, take some change from, like, the office, do, like, some admin if she needed to, and every time she would come in, I will put a video up for you to judge for yourself. She would just ignore the whole situation. There are a couple of times where she looks in and literally Louise is just naked. She's just literally trying to cover herself by the apron. It's 100% obvious that something is going on. Then there is a video where Louise puts her head on Donna's shoulder and you can see, you can't hear anything. There's no sound to this video, but you can see that she is saying something. She is pleading that Donna helps her out, that she gets her out of that situation. Louise said that she begged her every time she came in the room to get her out of there. She would say, get me out of here, please get me out of here. So, did Donna know? Well, let's listen to this video, let's watch it, let's see what she refuses to answer, most importantly in this video, and you can judge for yourself. And during it all, Donna Summers keeps walking in and out of the office. Every time you hear her coming in, what happens? He throws the apron at me and tells me, like, shh, don't tell Donna. When you walked into the office, what would you see between her and Walter? She was sitting on one side, he was sitting on the other. They weren't saying a whole lot. And she was covered. And she was covered up all the time. But there's at least one occasion when Summers comes in before Nix throws the apron over Louise. When we try to show Donna Summers the videotape. You say you didn't see her without her clothes on, but there she is. And you walk 
She can't talk about this. Summer's attorney, who's off camera, won't allow her to respond. Why didn't you tell Donna at that point? I begged her every time she came in the room, get me out of here. Please get me out of here. Donna, please, please. I didn't do anything wrong. Please believe me. And she puts her head on your shoulder. And she told us she was saying to you, please help me. No, she didn't. It's not what she said. Couldn't you feel her head on your shoulder? Uh, I don't recall that particular incident. I don't. She says she's begging you to rescue her. She never said that to me. The worst scum of the earth. Scum of the earth. So you can judge based on what you've just heard. You don't know. Did she just turn the blind eye? Was she just too busy handling what was going on? That she didn't notice any of these times of what was truly happening, that there was sexual abuse? Or did she just not give a fuck because she's a vile human being? Once Donna leaves one last time, we really find out that what comes next should have truly been prevented. After around three hours of this dehumanizing treatment, Nix, on the instructions of the person on the other end of the line, asks her to perform a sexual act, to give him a blowjob. After Louis does this, Officer Scott instructs Nix now, he's done, he's done with his play, he got what he wanted, so he tells Nix to bring Donna back in and ask her to bring somebody else in, because he wants to continue the fun, he's a sadistic piece of shit, so Donna comes in, and Donna is like, oh my god, what did he do, did he do something? And the caller is like, no, he was great, Donna. No, let's bring somebody else in. Do you have another man by any chance that's not that, like, you know, young man that was there before? No. Donna, again, is like, no, 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 don't worry. We have somebody, maybe even older. You know, I, I can completely trust this person as well. And this time she had Thomas Sims, who was a 58-year-old maintenance man, in mind. So she goes out again, tells her fiancé, bye-bye, I'll see you later, everything good? Yeah, totally, nothing awkward happened here for three hours. And Sims, who is the only human in this whole case, with some common sense, like, do you even understand? Like, this could have gone on. This could have actually been, like, so much worse somehow. But Sims goes in, takes the phone, and he's like, sorry, what? What do you mean she needs to take off the, the apron? Are you are you a pervert? What, what the fuck? So Sims goes out, brings Donna in, and he tells her, this man is asking for her to drop her apron so I can see her without it. And I said... Do what? And Donna is like, I have been head like nobody else has been head. This is unbelievable. And she kind of like looks towards the door like, oh my God, that means my fiance actually followed through with this. Surprise of the day. She has been scammed because even in this instance, Donna is human garbage who is truly just thinking about herself. She's like, oh my god, I now need to break up with my fiancé. Why, Donna? The two of you seem to be a perfect match. You seem to be deserving of one another. Why would you break up with him, Donna? I mean, clearly both of you fucking knew and ignored and sexually assaulted this girl. It's a perfect match. Get married, have children that are like this as well. Only after this, after Sims saves the freaking day, 
Donna decides three hours. I cannot express this enough. After three hours of somebody being put through sexual abuse, she finally decides, oh my God, why didn't I do this in the first place? Interesting. Why didn't I call my own manager? You know, the one that Officer Scott said he had on the other line. So first of all, she drops the phone with the Officer Scott. She just hangs up. And then they do one thing that could have led somewhere. They dial an asterisk in 69, which will give them the number of the phone that called and they note that down. So, okay, cool. They're at least doing something right now. And then Donna sits down and calls Lisa Siddons to check if her manager actually called the police. Surprise, surprise. N nobody. No, no, it wasn't a real police officer. I know. I know you're all gasping right now. You're all super surprised by this twist of events. Guess what? They managed to find a blanket in this office to put around Louise. Yeah, where was that blanket three hours ago as well? And they actually called the real police this time. That comes within minutes because, again, they were like a short walk away. They find Nick still lurking around. They arrest him on the charges of sexual assault and start investigating. So they ask Donna for the surveillance tapes, which she gives to them. And Donna only asked if she can watch the surveillance tapes herself. And she did with her attorney. Funny how she has the attorney on, on the ready. Seems like she has maybe repeated certain actions like these before, like some ignorance towards this type of crime. And then that night she broke off her engagement. It's truly, truly heartbreaking love story. My heart goes out to everybody involved. Except from Donna and Nix. The nightmare that lasted three and a half hours was finally over. Now, we could say what is wrong with any single person that was involved in this case. But this happened in over 60 fast food restaurants around the US. The hoaxes started in 1992. But they continued and by the end of 2000, there were more than a dozen. By the end of 2003, there were nearly 60 scam calls. After the investigation that I will go through in a second, detectives concluded that calls were all the work of one man. And this was based on his modus operandi of all of these calls being identical of how they couldn't actually track the real phone that he was calling from or pinpoint the location where he was calling these fast food restaurants from. In November 2000, the caller managed to convince the manager of McDonald's in Kentucky to remove her own clothes in front of a customer who the caller said that they suspected of the sex offenses. And again, pretending they were a cop, they said that undercover officers are going to burst in and arrest the customer the moment they were tried to molest this manager that they had on the line. And this manager said, well, I didn't call the police because I thought the police was on the phone with me. In May 2002, there was a girl celebrating her 18th birthday in McDonald's at Iowa, and she was forced to strip, to jog naked, again, assume different poses that they told her to, at the direction, again, of the caller pretending to be police officer. In January 2003... Assistant manager at Applebee's was put through an hour and a half long search of a waitress at the instruction of a caller. 
And the manager that searched her in this instance at Applebee's actually read the company memo warning about hoax calls just a month earlier. Later, he just told the police, oh, you know, when it comes to sexual, so I actually forgot about that memo. Funny how my mind works like that when I have the opportunity to strip search one of my employees. Disgusting. In June 2003, another call came through to a Taco Bell in Alaska, and the police officer in this case said that they were investigating drug abuse at the store, and the manager picked out a 14-year-old customer and then forced her to strip search and perform sexual acts. So by the time this caller phoned the McDonald's in April 2004, that is the location of this story, supervisors were scammed in at least 68 stores in 32 states. And the police departments just didn't think they were related before this event, they just didn't communicate, as most of the times they didn't even know what to report, how to report this. So in many of these instances, they didn't even circulate the news, they didn't even tell the employers and the employees that there were all of these hoax calls happening all throughout 32 states. Going back to the timeline, the Mount Washington police detectives now are on the case. The first thing Detective Buddy Stump thought about was that this pervert must have been making these calls on a payphone. But then they thought, okay, this lasted for over three hours. Where the hell is he just standing on a payphone and nobody's just noticing anything weird? With that number that they have recovered, they could recover like the last couple of digits on the card, and they've done some quick internet search and realized that calls happening from prepaid cards with like the last couple of digits were actually going on for more than 10 years. So now they are after that calling card and they find out it's AT&T calling card and one of the biggest sellers of these random calling cards that you can, you know, just like SIM card, you can dispose of it whenever you want. One of the biggest sellers is Walmart. So he contacts local police for help because he's like, okay, he's going to buy it somewhere like locally. He's going to go to like one of the local Walmarts. So Stump, who is actually using his brain in this instance, calls an officer in this other district that is investigating the calls that have been made to a Wendy's. So this officer told him, no, I as well, like I also traced the card's purchase to the exact time, but then when I went to this Walmart at Panama City at that time, we had really bad luck. Basically, the security cameras were pointed towards the front doors and not the registers. So I couldn't see the sale. I couldn't see who actually purchased them at this exact time. So I have a timestamp, but I cannot tell you who the hell purchased them. But now that the officers are aware of other scams, they actually start communicating for a change and they discovered a calling card that was used at the Kentucky incident was purchased at a different Walmart than that Wendy's one. They're like, okay, cool. If we get a timestamp here, we have the man. The cameras, in this case, were directed at the cash registers. So sure enough, here they track the purchase down and they see a person paying for this card and they see a uniform on him. When they zoom in, the uniform says CCA, Corrections Corporation of America, which is a private prison company running jails in Panama City. So they're like, wait, he like works as, as one of us? He's a prison warden? So they go to the CCA 
and they identify the man in the video as one of their prison guards, 38-year-old David Stewart. So the police obtains all sorts of warrants, like any single warrant for anything Stewart owned, and they go to his trailer where they find different guns, police paraphernalia, training manuals. They discover that he attended local police academy and volunteered as a deputy with the small police department. So he was a real wannabe. A real wannabe that just didn't achieve anything. And he probably wasn't getting off enough because, hey, prisons are supervised with cameras. Guess what? He couldn't impose all of this power that he wanted to impose over prisoners. So he found a different way to do it. The police wasted no time and charged him for impersonating a police officer, soliciting sodomy, soliciting sexual abuse. And a week-long trial begins. Stewart, of course, declined. He said he's not guilty. He feels bad for the victims. He feels bad for the loss because he's a victim as well, you guys. He lost his job, his home, his car. Which, true, if he was innocent, that would be devastating. I'm not the one for the false accusations, as you know. But his lawyer at the trial really took the cake because he said, I had numerous conversations with this man, David Stewart, yeah? I don't actually believe he is, like, intelligent enough. I don't know how to say so. I don't think he's persuasive or just eloquent enough to convince somebody to do these things. He, he just is not the smartest. You know, you know what I mean? One thing I couldn't read anywhere, and I truly, personally, it's a personal opinion, but I think it's a missed opportunity. Remember how Officer Scott knew certain details. So either they were stalking this restaurant intensively to learn the branch manager's details, to learn how Louise looked like, at least superficially, or what occurred to me and what they didn't really drill enough at is, well, it would be really easy if the man worked for the system. It would be easy to access certain information if you work in the system where you know people, you might have the connections in police, you have volunteered in certain police departments, you can easily obtain names. If you pass the restaurant, you know, you maybe have taken a glance at the license plates and now suddenly, what, you know who is managing the place. You pass it and you're like, okay, this will be the victim. So yes, you're scouting, but also what they really didn't drill enough at is the fact that this guy, it's completely logical that he either works in the prison system or for the police. During this trial, there was an apparent bombshell moment where detectives testified that they recovered a calling card from Stewart's home, and they said this card, this particular card, is the ultimate proof because it has been used in the Burger King scam call in Idaho, the same restaurant where another female manager was given instructions to strip search a male employee in this case. But Stewart's lawyer argued that this doesn't prove that he was the one that made the calls. The technology just wasn't up to date. There was no voice recording to compare his voice to. They didn't have these calls for somebody to be like, oh no, that is him on that call. So the fact that they just found a random old calling card, 
could have meant anything. Could have meant it was somebody that visited him. Could have meant he found it in a dumpster and, I don't know, returned it back home and kept a random calling card. Sure, however, that was enough to convince the jury. So there just wasn't enough evidence, and after two hours of deliberations, Stewart was found not guilty of none of the charges. And double jeopardy is a bitch, so he couldn't be tried again. One thing that I have to note here, because, again, it's it's a bit on the nose. So you see, Stuart was arrested all of this time awaiting trial. And funny enough, during the time that he was arrested, and also after the time that he was released, funny, but there were no reported hoax calls to any fast food restaurants around the country. So it all stopped with this Kentucky one, and then he was arrested, and then it all stopped again, and then it never happened again. Weird. I I don't know, does that have anything to do with maybe the fact that they didn't put the, the person that was responsible in prison? What happened to our favorite people from this Kentucky McDonald's? Well, Nick's pled guilty to sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, and unlawful imprisonment. The judge agreed to him having a plea deal if he was to testify against David Stewart, so he used that even though Stewart walked free. Nix only received five-year prison sentence. He could, though, appeal and maybe get parole after a minimum of two years. So, you know, it's, it's all good. As long as as long as long we don't put some blame on Nix, it's all good. Straight men, straight men need to win in this case. Also, during his trial... Nick said a brilliant quote where he said he thought she was giving him a blowjob on the orders of the police officer. It's just how, you know, police officers work. To which I say, what if tables were turned, Nick? What if it was you being asked to give a blowjob to another man? Would you still do it, Nick? Because it's a police officer ordering it on the other end of the line. Would you do a blowing mix? Yeah, would you? Yeah, why did nobody ask him that? Because I, I somehow something tells me that would trigger something else in his mind. It would be a different thought process. What about our favorite person, Donna? Well, McDonald's fired her. They couldn't excuse her actions. She was one of the employees. But then she was offered to enter an Alford plea to a misdemeanor charge. And the courts found her guilty of unlawful imprisonment, but she received one-year probation. So no prison sentence. No, no, no. But that's not all. Donna filed a claim against McDonald's for intentional infliction of emotional distress. And she was awarded over a million dollars in punitive damages. She was awarded money for how well she handled this, for the emotional distress. I'm not denying that she was in distress. I'm not denying that I would know how to react in these instances, but to award her a million dollars for denying that she was allowing sexual assault to happen, are we all right? Louise, of course, started suffering from panic attacks. She had severe insomnia and nightmares following this. And she switched between different antidepressants before she finally found some relief. 
She also sued McDonald's and was awarded in 2007 5 million in punitive damages and 1.1 million in compensatory damages and expenses, so around 6 million. So hey, at least at least she got more. At least she got more, but nobody really wins because she was seeking 200 million in damages because of her trauma and because nobody was charged, nobody even paid for this. And yet again, because of how McDonald's and everybody treated this and how they left her out there to be sexually assaulted for three hours. Louise and her lawyers were trying to prove that McDonald's failed to warn their employees about the hoax, even though these hoaxes were apparently happening all over the country, about 60 plus of them. Of course, then there was a separate trial because McDonald's tried to get out of the situation and they were quite... Don't get in trouble with McDonald's, you still have the best fries. But well, of course, they try to not incriminate themselves as much as possible and to get the least amount of monetary compensation possible. So they said that Donna didn't follow the company's manual, which prohibits strip searches. It's so weird that this is in manuals at employment. Like, how is this not, not just even common sense? Like, this has to be in manuals. So McDonald's should not be held responsible for any action that she was doing while employed. Then they said workers' compensation law prohibited employees from suing the employer, that Nix was actually not the employee of McDonald's, and that victim didn't remove herself from the situation, contrary to common sense. She was fucking petrified and she would just get further humiliated if she left the room. Yeah, let's victim play McDonald's. Good, good one. But in this trial, the jury decided McDonald's and the unnamed caller were each 50% at fault for the abuse that the victims were subjected to. And in November 2008, McDonald's was also ordered to pay $2.4 million in legal fees to the plaintiff's lawyers. Which I put, that's where your fries money is going into. It's in the freaking lawsuits that McDonald's is going through that we are not aware of. What came out of this? Well, after the decisions by the court, McDonald's revised the manager training program and now it emphasizes awareness of scam phone calls and protection of employee rights. Round of applause, round of applause, please, everybody. Wow. People now know that the hoax calls were happening, but then they stopped. But then they stopped and they still somehow didn't manage to convict a person. So this is the case of the scam call at McDonald's in Kentucky. Now, let's go back to Milgram experiment and what could have motivated this event. I split this section because there are different people that we need to speak about when it comes to motivations. So as to why the caller did it, I just put, this is a clear, clear representation of somebody who is just trying to get off, who obviously feels powerless in his real-life job and just wants to finally be in the control of his sadistic intentions. So that's a pretty easy one for me. This is like a clear sadist who is just getting off on this, getting off on having control for as long as he possibly can. In this case, he succeeded to do it for three and a half hours. Because David Stewart was never charged and because we don't know much about his childhood or anything like that, I can't go further into that, but let me know what you think on this one. I do believe that this guy was guilty 
and that he just got off scot-free. There was this clinical psychologist, Jeff Cardier, that said that Kohler's actions were likely a way to feed his godlike complex by manipulating the victims emotionally, physically, and sexually. And he calls this manipulation virtual voyeurism. He also said the perp, whoever it was, it seemed like he was following everything by the book. And he just knew that if something was outside of the scope of their manuals or like the procedures that they're used to, that they would be lost. That they wouldn't know what to do. And he's like, yeah, there is a great chance that they're going to believe if somebody tries to sell them a story of a person being a police officer. And the detectives on the case also said that this perp mastered the police officer's calm but authoritative demeanor, that they used the law enforcement jargon, and that they did their homework. Which again makes you believe that they are just one of them. Detectives further said that the officer Scott in the Mount Washington case knew the color of her hair as well as her height and weight well, roughly, and that he even described the tie that she was wearing. So they assumed that this guy was actually stalking and scouting these locations. But they also noticed that he wasn't always successful because the phone records show that he would sometimes call as many as 10 stores before finding one single person that would take the bait, which is so creepy because it just means that he kept trying until he succeeded. Some people just need to get laid. Just need to get laid. Going into the motives of why Louise didn't run, I think she described it perfectly. But what I'm going to play to you now is a video of this clinical psychologist, Jeff Gardier, explaining that this could have been just an out-of-body experience. It just feels like she disassociated and just let it happen because she didn't know what else to do to help herself out. My soul just left my body. I just went numb to everything so that I could just survive. Clinical psychologist Jeff Gardier says Louise's reaction is not uncommon. It's almost an out-of-body experience. It's, it's, it's like they're standing right next to themselves as this whole thing is happening, and they can't do a thing about it. It's, it's a nightmare where they can't wake up. Now we go back to Milgram, who conducted his experiment in the 60s. This event happened in 2004. So the question really is, would this still happen today? And why? Because this event happened in the early 2000s. This is not like something that would happen in Milgram's time, or you would think it's not. In this case, the situation we have upon us again is something that Louise's therapist actually said, and that is that Louise followed orders because her experience with adults has been to do what she is told, because good girls, good people do what they are told. So going back to Milgram, what he has also looked at is that obedience to authority is ingrained in us. It's something that's ingrained in us all the way from how we are brought up. This means that people are more likely to obey orders from other people if they recognize that they are authority and if they realize their authority as morally or legally right. And as Milgram proved, he was in controlled environment. He was at university, so people trusted him the same way that would happen if this was in the school environment, in the work environment. 
Going back to his agentic state from the 60s, his conclusions were that physical presence of the authority figure dramatically increases compliance. In his experiment, the fact that he was a trusted Yale professor who was sponsoring the study led the participants to believe that the experiment must be safe. So here we can compare this to this guy saying he knows the branch manager, there was some trust built, and as you could see if you watch compliance, there was a lot of rapport building which is just better represented in a movie, but there was a lot of this officer Scott just complimenting Donna to like, she's doing such a great job, she's just trying to keep this workplace safe, she's helping the police out. During the Milgram experiment, the selection of teacher and learner stayed random. Here again, there was nothing to have Donna or anybody else suspect that Louise wasn't chosen at random, that she was actually this criminal that they tried to portray her as. In Milgram's experiment, participants assumed that the experimenter was a competent expert. Here, everybody left in charge. The police officer on the other end of the line was an authoritative figure. And during the Milgram experiment, the shocks were said to be painful, but not dangerous. Here, at least for the first part of this strip search, they try to keep it logical, like, oh, we're just checking for cavities, different parts of your body, and then it just gets more and more morbid, where you can't even explain the actions you're doing, but somebody is just that far ahead that there is no reason why they should explain it, because they're just compliant at that point. It's the same thing where in Milgram experiment, the learner would just stop responding, but the teacher would still keep shocking them. As to the obedience rates, there have actually been cross-cultural studies done, and the US obedience rate is about 60%, which isn't that much different from like the foreign obedience rate, which is actually higher, almost 66%. But one question remains. If this was to happen today, would the subject still obey? And the answer to that is sort of yes. There were recent studies. In 2009, another psychologist, Jerry Berger, conducted an experiment at another university, Santa Clara Uni, and the results of this experiment revealed that the participants obeyed at the same rate they did when Milgram did it 40 years ago. This, again, is criticized because it's a similar experiment, but the maximum shock level here was 150 volts as opposed to 450. But still, very similar to Milgram and still very similar results. During his experiment, though, given social support, many of the subjects refused to continue to administer shocks, and they suggested that social solidarity serves as the kind of defense against disobedience to authority. Kind of like in this case, when Sims said, like, oh, no, I'm actually not standing this, and then everybody else was like, oh my god, yeah, this was a scam. It just came too late, and truly, that 27-year-old boy could have saved everything, but he just didn't. He just continued with his shift. It was like, well, somebody else is going to report this if it's shady. A French university conducted the study in 2012 and reported on it in a European review of applied psychology. They actually put the context into a game show. So they wanted to test whether a game show host would have as much authority as a scientific experimenter. 
And what the results have proven is that, in fact, if anything, the percentage of people compliant is higher. It's at around 81% compared to 65% with Milgram. And plenty of psychologists argue that both external and internal factors heavily influence obedience, so anything from personal beliefs and just overall personality, but then there are obviously others that will argue that it's situational, that the situation that they are put in can sway how obedient they are in that particular instance. Then there was this random experiment by the BBC in 2017, where this woman is just walking around giving orders to people on the bridge. So she just walks around like with like a normal jacket, you know, looking like a normal passerby, and then nobody listens to her. But as soon as she puts the highest one of those yellow jackets and is just passing by, suddenly people do listen to, like, these bogus claims that she is saying. Like, you know, this bridge is closed off, or, like, you know, you can't step on this line of the road. And it's just so bizarre. It's literally, like, three minutes of the dumbest experiment, and you still think, like, why? Why would we obey somebody just because they're dressed as an authoritative figure? In 2012, two different psychologists, Alex Haslam and Steven Reicher, published this essay, and their essay suggested the degree to which people are willing to obey depends on two different factors. One is how much the individual actually agrees with the orders, and the other one is how much they identify with the person giving the orders. So here you could really say, well, Donna kind of seemed to have just ignored everything that was happening. Otherwise, why not answer a couple of questions, Donna? Why not answer those tricky ones? And also, well, she built rapport with this person. She thought it was the authoritative figure. She thought it was a police officer. She had no reason to suspect them. And finally, what this retired FBI special agent, Dania Blonsky, said is, especially when it comes to these instances, like fast food restaurants, this person behind the calls, whoever he was, whether it was Simmons or not, knew that it's customer service. These people are literally trained to say and think, can I help you? How can I help you? We as humans are trained to do so, especially if you work in customer service. You and I can sit here and judge these people and say they were blooming idiots, but they aren't trained to use common sense. They're trained to say and think, can I help you? I am exhausted just by even thinking for another split second about this case. So I'm going to send you off into your next Zoom call, where I would like you to discuss compliance, just this case in general, or compliance as a movie. And the approach that you should possibly take is to start up a conversation, because this can be like a great lunch topic, like about how people were brought up. For example, me personally, like, there was this time where my dad literally told me, Maya, you're smart. If an authoritative figure, if a police officer, because people suspect police a lot back home, people are not really confident in fucking authorities, so, which is great, because this is how I was brought up. So, I would think I would have more common sense, which again, I have no idea how I would react in these cases. But my dad always told me, Maya, if a police officer asks you a question and you suspect this can lead to trouble, this is like some shady question. Lie. Just just lie. Outright lie. Don't, don't get yourself in trouble. Just refuse to answer. Just do not obey at any point. 
So I was brought up skeptical of just anybody and anything, which is probably why I quit so many jobs of mine after like being there for a year, sometimes more, sometimes less. I just cannot handle the concept of somebody having that amount of power. So it's a good lunch though. It's a good lunch topic to start and chat with your colleagues about the ways they were brought up and how they think they would react in this kind of situation. Because again, whatever you think about this case, I think it's important to remember every single situation where after a certain point, you didn't know how to back out any longer because you have said yes so many times that now... If you were to say no, you would be like so lost, like you just you just wouldn't know how to deal with it. Whether it is saying yes to somebody's plans and then being there and then everything that they would suggest, you would just go along with because you wanted to be seen as a person, you know, who wants to have fun. Or if it's a workplace, you know, you just piled up all these projects and you don't know how to back out any longer. And that unfortunately here was the position that Louise Ogborn was in. So I'm going to let you go, and while you discuss this case with your colleagues at your lunch, and you discuss authoritative figures, and, you know, would they be able to boss you around, would you be susceptible to it, or how would you deal in any single situation like this, how would you actually back out at any single step, well, by doing that, you are going to keep, what? Making this world a better place, one motive at a time. Bye, fuckers. Happy Monday. Oh, happy Monday. You know, at least you're safe. <laughs> that was my thing while watching Compliance, this whole movie. I was like, Maya, you're in the safe space. They cannot hurt you. And then, like, literally was so painfully slow. I was like, this movie is hurting my soul. I was like, Maya, you're in the safe space. It's okay it's okay and then like something bizarre would happen i'll be like it's not okay none of it is yeah thanks for coming to my ted talk uh bye now bye fuckers <laughs>